exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Anyone who's ever made a New Year's resolution knows that. In fact, research shows that 23% of Americans give up on their New Year's resolutions after just one week. 43% quit by the end of January. And by the end of the year, only 9% of people finish keeping the resolutions. So why are we so bad at that? And why do we do it year after year? Well, I think it's in part because of the principle of inertia. An object in motion tends to stay in motion, and an object at rest tends to stay at rest. According to one study, it takes an average of 66 days for a new behavior to become automatic. And it takes about the same amount of time to break a habit. So if you want to lose weight, it's not as simple as choosing to go to the gym once. You have to choose over and over and over and over again. If you want to give up sugar or coffee or smoking or whatever, you have to choose not to partake for 66 days in a row before life becomes somewhat automatic without those things. And those are just ordinary, everyday kinds of struggles that everyone deals with. But here's my question. If we as Christians have really been born again, if we're really new creations in Christ, if we really have the spirit of the living God dwelling inside of us, why do we still struggle so often with sin? Why do we still struggle with those old wicked habits that consumed us even from before the time when we were Christians? I mean, if Ephesians, dead, if Ephesians 2 is really true, and we were really dead in our sins, but now we who are in Christ have been spiritually resurrected in our souls. If that is a reality, why do we so often slip back into those old patterns and behaviors? Struggling with sin is not a new problem. Even the apostle Paul wrote in Romans 7, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I've still never heard a better description of the Christian struggle with sin. It's been 18 years since I became a Christian and I still feel like I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I wonder if you can relate. Is that you? Do you feel that struggle? I remember one time there was a woman who came to her pastor and, and, and she was incredibly discouraged because she kept falling into sin over and over and over again. And at one point she said to her pastor, I'm just tired of having to repent. And I don't think that woman was tired of the grace of repentance. I think she was tired of the struggle. I think she was tired of falling again and again and again. Sometimes that struggle can make you feel like a failure, like a second-rate Christian, like you're never going to get it right. Is that how you feel this morning? Are you just tired of having to repent? Well, if you have your Bibles... Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be picking up in verse 17. And if you're using a pew Bible, Ephesians 4, 17 is on page 1,161. And, and I, as you're turning, my prayer for us this morning is that we would find victory in your struggle against sin. Because in Ephesians 4, we're going to find three realities of who we are in Christ. Three realities of who we are in Christ. 
Because as we study the subject on how to fight sin, the cure for fighting sin is not becoming something new, but recognizing who you already are. So first, here's what we're going to see. First, we are no longer totally depraved. We'll see that in verses 17 through 19. Second, in verses 20 through 24, we are now new creations in Christ. And third, we are members of one another. We are no longer totally depraved, but we are new creatures in Christ, members of one another. So let's pray and let's find out who we really are. Holy God, as we come to your word, we confess that it is timeless and that it is always timely. Lord, we confess to you that that we come to you as a people obsessed with our identity. But Lord, only you know who we truly are. For you are the one who formed us and made us. And you alone know the human heart. So Lord, would you now, by your spirit, infuse my words with your power so that we would be able to see ourselves the way you see us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at me to verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. All the way down in verse one, Paul told us how we should walk, walk in a manner which is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And now in verse 17, Paul is telling us, this is how you should not walk like the Gentiles do. Gentiles is a word that literally just means nations. It means the non-Israelites. So don't walk like the world. And, And how should we not walk like we used to walk, like the rest of the world? Notice that Paul does not say, do not walk like this, but he says, no longer walk. Meaning what? That these verses describe how we used to live before we came to Christ. How did we walk in the futility of our minds? If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, futility is a favorite word of of King Solomon. King Solomon, who had everything that his heart could desire, concluded at the end of his search that all was futility and vanity. Whether it was riches or power, whether it was women or wine, at the end of his life, Solomon was like, all of this worldly stuff is empty. The famous actor and theologian Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it is not the answer. When you pursue the temporary pleasures of this world, believing the lie that it will satisfy, that is a a kind of futile thinking that Paul is talking about. And then verse 18 says this, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of God. Of your heart. To have your understanding darkened means that you don't even have the ability to understand spiritual truth. Your mind is so full of darkness that you cannot comprehend the light. That's what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He said, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Have you ever been talking about your faith or your, your Bible or the Bible or something spiritual with someone and they just don't get it? It could be the smartest, most intelligent person in the world and it just flies right over their head and it's, it's like you're speaking gibberish. It's because their minds are darkened. They, they cannot understand. And that's a not, not a knock on those people because that was true for us. 
For instance, growing up, I'd been to countless church services and it meant nothing to me. I had heard the gospel a thousand times and it did nothing for me. I'm thankful that I was in church. I'm thankful I had that exposure and that I heard those scriptures and was taught those things, but I was spiritually blind and never got it. And I'd heard the gospel a thousand times and on the thousand and first time of hearing the gospel, it clicked. And if you're in this room and you're a Christian, that is your story too. Whether you even realize it or not, it was at the moment in which the darkness of your mind was lifted and that you could see the light. That is what happened when you came to faith in Jesus. Before Christ, our thinking was futile and we were spiritually blind. Before Christ, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, alienated from God, who is himself the source of all light and the giver of all life. And verse 19 says this, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Our hearts were hard and callous, like a tough scab that grows over a wound. Like the first time that you choose to commit a particular sin, it may be a huge struggle. You may feel incredibly guilty about committing that one sin. But what happens over time? is that slowly, 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 the more you participate in that sin, the more your heart becomes callous to it until eventually you don't feel any guilt at all and it's almost second nature for you to participate in that. And that's why a callous heart leads into sexual sin and it makes us greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Did you notice that in verse 19? It's not that we're made greedy for money, which I think this could be included. But Paul says that we are greedy for impurity. It's not as if anyone's making us do these things, but we gave ourselves up willingly. We desired these things within our hearts. Theologians call this condition total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. But total depravity is the teaching that every part of our being has been so radically corrupted by sin that we come into the world as sinners. That's why David wrote in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Because even from birth, our minds, our spirits, our hearts were radically corrupted by the fall. So before I was, I was a Christian, I'll tell you, I did not struggle with sin because there was no struggle. I was definitely a sinner, but I was doing exactly what I wanted. I wasn't a terrible kid. Really, if you looked at eight-year-old Taylor, I was more of a goody two-shoes. As a teacher's pet, I wanted to make my parents happy, but I was incredibly self-righteous and arrogant. I knew I was a good person. No question, I knew I was going to heaven when I died. That was until my religion teacher at my Catholic school started teaching through the Ten Commandments. And if Catholics know how to do anything well, it's convince you that you are guilty. And, 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 you know, I got through the first commandments pretty well. I was pretty unscathed. But eventually they started stacking up one over and o- another. And I w- after commandment after commandment, I realized, oh, I'm a sinner. I- I've broken that one and that one. I'm deserving of God's justice. And if God's good, then he must judge evil. And the more and more I stared at those Ten Commandments, the more and more I realized I was guilty. But it was finally when I was convinced that I was a sinner, I finally realized that I needed Jesus because that's why Jesus came, to live the perfect life that I was unable to live and to die the death that I deserved. 
and to defeat the enemy that I never could, death and hell and the grave itself. And it was when all these truths came together for me in my life that I finally realized that I was a sinner in need of a savior. And I, my eyes were open for the very first time in my life. And that's how I became a Christian. And that's how we all become Christians. It's that moment when your eyes are open and you see the light and you recognize your sin and you see the beauty and the love and the glory of Christ's sacrifice and, and you're just drawn to it. So let me ask, what about you? Do verses 17 through 19 describe your former way of life or your current way of life? Have you been radically changed by the grace of God? Have you had that eye-opening experience? Or, or in other words, what I'm asking is, have you been born again? If not, I pray desperately that God would do that miracle. If that is not you, repent of your sin today and put your faith alone in Jesus. And let me say this, if these verses do describe your past life, if you have been changed, if you have been born again, I have great news for you because you are no longer totally depraved. You have a new nature. In Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I think I've even told you about this conversation I was having with a family member who, who said, well, I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do about it because I'm depraved. And I said, no, you're not. Because you're a Christian, you are no longer depraved. Like, I believe that we're sinners. I believe we're born totally depraved. But the clear teaching of the scripture is that once a person is born again, they are a new species. They're an entirely new something else than what they were before. And you can no longer blame your sin on total depravity. That's on you. But there's good news in that. The old is gone, the new has come. And that leads me to the second reality of who we are in Christ. Because not only are we no longer totally depraved, but we're also new creations in Christ. So look at me in verse 20. But, this, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Notice in verse 20, it's not that the Ephesians merely learned facts about Christ or that they merely learned the teachings of Christ, but that they learned Christ himself. This phrase, to learn a person... It actually doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible, and it doesn't show up anywhere in the ancient Greek language at this time. It's a, it's a very peculiar phrase. And, and Paul uses this intentionally awkward phrase, and he's saying that for those who have learned Christ, for those who know him, for those who have a relationship with him, to still walk like the Gentiles is utter insanity. And then in verse 21, as a side note, Paul says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The bar here is so low. Paul is saying, if you heard about Jesus, then you would know that we don't live like the rest of the world. It's also interesting to know that Paul says Jesus here instead of Christ. And the reason I point that out is actually, if you read Paul, he very rarely uses the name Jesus to refer to Jesus. In fact, one scholar noted, this is the only time in Ephesians that Christ is called Jesus because Paul is generally emphasizing his enthronement above all spiritual powers. But here he reminds us that God has taught us by becoming a man, both to live a righteous Christian life for us and to practice what he preached to show us what he meant. To learn Christ and to hear about him and to be taught in him is to know Jesus and that knowledge should change the way 
you live. That's why Paul continues in verse 22. Look with me. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Scholars debate these verses because it's not entirely clear in this context. Is Paul giving us commands to obey or is he describing something that has already happened to every Christian? Is Paul saying that we as Christians need to continually put off the old self or is Paul saying that the old self was put off when we are converted? Well, even though it's unclear here in these verses, thankfully, Paul talks about the exact same thing in Colossians. Listen closely. This is Colossians chapter 3. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, past tense, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So did you hear that? Paul's argument in Colossians is that because we have already put away our old self, now we must put away the old practices, the old ways of living. So, so are we putting something away past tense? Are we putting something away present tense? It's both. It's an already but not yet reality. We have already put away the old self. We are already new, but we have not yet fully put off all the practices associated with our old life. And I think it's important to say here, I'm going to get a little nerdy, so stick with me here. It's important to say here that when Paul says to put off the old self, he's literally saying to put off the old human. The word for self in verse 22 is the word anthropos, which is where we get the word anthropology, which is the study of humanity. It's the study of human beings. Anthropos means humanity or mankind. And so Paul says to put off the old anthropos, and to put on the new anthropos, he's saying, put off the old humanity and put on the new humanity. He's saying the same thing he said in Romans 5, that in Adam, our nature was sinful and fallen. In Adam, our nature was corrupt according to our seedful desires, that all of us, like Adam and Eve, have listened to the lies of the serpent and desired evil. And so the call of verse 22 is to put off that old humanity, that old nature, to repent of our sins and to come to Christ and put on the new humanity, who is Christ. They say clothes make the man. Now, I don't know how true that is. I don't value clothing very highly, which some of you have noticed. But when you become a Christian, you do get new clothes And when you put on these clothes, when you are clothed in Christ, the clothes very much make the man or make the woman. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is from Zechariah chapter 3. It's a weird story. This is my Bible nerd talking, but I love this story. It's an incredible story. We're in Zechariah 3. Zechariah the prophet has this vision of heaven. And in heaven, Joshua the high priest, he's standing before the angel of the Lord on his right, and Satan is on his left, standing there waiting to accuse Joshua. And because Joshua is standing there clothed with just filthy garments, that, that was scandalous to, for a priest. Priests had, were supposed to have spotless, white, pure clothes to represent their spiritual purity. But in this vision, Joshua the high priest is as dirty as he can be. Satan is ready to accuse him. And then the angel of the Lord says, remove the filthy garments from him. And behold, I have taken your sin away from you and I will clothe you with pure clothing. 
And that's the picture that we get in Ephesians chapter 4. That sin is like a kind of spiritual pollution and filth. And every time that we break one of God's law, we get another toxic stain. And the problem is, is that we are totally helpless to clean yourself. If you have sewage on the ground and you have a, a towel covered in sewage, you cannot clean that sewage at all because the thing you're trying to clean it with is dirty. So if we are dirty, we cannot clean ourselves. We need something clean outside of ourselves to take away our stains. And so here's what Jesus does. Christ takes our filthy garments. He wears them to the cross to suffer in our place. And now not only has Christ satisfied the wrath of God at the cross, but now if you have believed in Jesus, then Christ clothes you with his very righteousness. Spotless, white garments, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of you, not from you, that had nothing to do with you. Tony Morita is a pastor down in North Carolina. And in his commentary on Ephesians, he tells the story of how he and his wife were involved in an international adoption. This is what he writes. After spending about 35 days in Ukraine in an effort to adopt our four children, my wife and I finally had permission to go home with them. All the legal work was done. We were eager to show them love in many ways, including cleaning them up and giving them some new clothes. They had been wearing the same smelly clothes and the same worn out shoes every day since we arrived. Once we had permission to leave, we brought them some brand new outfits. Kimberly took the older two children. I took the younger two. I told the girls via translator, girls, we're going home. Little Victoria asked, forever? I said, yes, forever. Their faces lit up as I gave them their denim dresses, socks, shirts, and more. They went to the bathroom and changed every garment. In their orphanage, upon leaving, the children had to leave behind every piece of clothing they had been wearing. Oh, what a picture of the gospel. They put off their old orphanage garments and put on the clothes from their adopted parents. New clothes, new identity, new home, new security, and a new way to live. End quote. And that's what it looks like to put off the old and put on the new. Now, even though this putting off and putting on happened when we first believed in Jesus, notice that in verse 23, couched between these two statements is this idea of being renewed in the spirits of our mind. Now, it's interesting. Verses 22 and 24, they're in the past tense. But in verse 23, it's in the present tense, which tells us that the renewing of the mind is a continual process. That even though we are new creations in Christ, we need to be constantly reminded of our new identity. Because let me tell you something, church. Look at me. Look at me. Too many Christians still see themselves as dirty when they have been made clean. You need to stop believing the accusations of the devil. You need to stop believing the lies of the world and even the lies you tell yourself and we need to completely reorder how we think. And the way we do that is by being transformed in the renewing of our minds and conforming all of our thoughts to Scripture. Not how we feel, not our circumstances, not what the world tells you, but what the Word tells us. 
And this is why it's so important that you are in your Bibles and that you read your Bibles and that you meditate on the Bible and that you memorize the Bible and that you hear the Bible preach and you hear the Bible read and you hear the Bible sung because true godliness begins with a renewed mind. And listen to me, you will never win the war against sin unless you're able to see the world and the church and even yourself the way God sees you and embrace those identities. In these verses, it's also so important to recognize, Paul is not commanding the Ephesians to become someone new. He's commanding them to become who they already are. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. Because that leads us to the third reality of who we are in Christ, members of one another. This new creation reality for Paul was most authentically experienced and lived out in the local church. Look with me to verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now notice though, even though we've already put off our old humanity, we still have to put off these sinful habits. That even though our old humanity was put away when we believed, we still need to put away our old sinful habits. That even though we have put on a new humanity, we need to put on new holy habits. And now this answers your question. Why do we still sin and struggle with the same habits and vices that we had before we were Christians? Is Because even though you have been made new, it takes a while to form some new habits. Because you spent the first however many years of your life entrenched in sin. And it takes a while to break those patterns. So Paul says, put those practices away. And it's interesting too. Look, Paul's logic is, why should you tell the truth instead of lying? And Paul's answer is because we are members of one another. It's important to note that as Paul is giving us these commands, his focus is on the local church. Church. Now, of course, you should speak truthfully to everyone. But here is Paul's point. Because we're all members of the same body, to lie to a fellow member is hurting your own body. Lies, gossip, slander are a quick way to split a church. So let me ask this. What do you happen then when that happens, when one member speaks deceitfully to another? We'll look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Not all anger is sinful. In fact, the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Because when God is angry, it's a righteous anger. It's a holy anger. An anger against the sin and evil in this world. And when you see blatant evil in this world, you should not tolerate it or ignore it. But Christian, you should be angry. To quote John Stott, if God hates sin, his people should hate it too. Now, this does not give us a free reign to yell at people and to get in fights and to just be total jerks because Paul does give us three rules for how to be angry in a godly way. First, don't sin. Second, don't let, your, don't let the sun go down. And third, don't give an opportunity to the devil. So look at that first. The, the, the reason most anger is unrighteous is because most people allow their anger to control them instead of being in control of their anger. And that leads to a multitude of sins. Now I want to talk about the second one for a little bit. It seems like even righteous anger, if you hold on to it, if you let the sun go down on your anger and allow it to fester 
even righteous anger can become sinful. And that's why it's such a common rule in marriages to never go to bed angry. Because especially in marriage, when you allow conflict to go unresolved and you just shove down your anger and you say everything's fine, when in reality your anger is simmering under the surface, that leads to disaster. Because as that anger simmers and simmers and you just keep neglecting to confront the conflict in your marriage, that anger turns into resentment and that resentment turns into disdain and that disdain leads to, too often, divorce. But once again, remember, Paul is not actually talking about marriage here. It's like 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage of Paul. It's a beautiful passage and we read it at weddings all the time. But 1 Corinthians 13 is actually about love for your fellow church members in the context of Corinthians. And and this verse about being angry and not sinning and don't let the sun go down on your anger is actually about, I think in the immediate context, your fellow believers, which is interesting. And let me say this. Um, It's such a common temptation for people to just sweep their frustrations under the rug, especially in the church, and to never talk about it. And what it results is people just don't talk to each other or they move churches or, or let's say this, let's say someone stays in the church. They push down their anger, they push down their frustration, and they are still here, but that anger is still simmering under the surface, and eventually it will boil over. It is not a question of if, it is a question of when. And when it boils over, that's when you give an opportunity to the devil for much evil. That's when the devil gets to do what he does best. So let me plead with you right now, church, listen to me. This is very important. When any member of this church, when any fellow believer, when even I make you angry, and especially when I make you angry as your pastor, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Rather, go to them in private, speak the truth in love, even if the conversations are difficult. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul hits us with a classic, thou shalt not steal, eighth commandment, great. But then he expands on it. He says, it's not just good enough that someone stops stealing, but also get a job and now contribute to the covenant community. Help the poor, help the needy, help the widow, help the orphan. For Paul, it was not enough for them to stop doing evil. They not only had to put away the old, they had to put on the new. And then in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This verse is oftentimes used to say cuss words are bad. And and I think that's a part of that. Offensive words that offend our brother and sister should not be said. I think it's good if Christians abstain from those kind of vulgar words. But to say that verse 29 is just about bad words just misses the mark. As Christians, we shouldn't just be about not cussing. We should be about not saying anything unkind. That even though something we should strive for is to be pure of speech, we should also be known for our kindness and lovingness and our encouragingness to those around us. Listen, when you say anything to one another, you should ask yourself, is this going to build up my brother? Is this going to give grace to my sister? Now, a lot of people have questions about what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. And part of this is because people come up with a lot of crazy explanations for what it might mean. 
But look at the context again. And I think this is the context. When you tear down your brother in Christ, who has also been sealed by the Spirit, you grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you also were sealed. I think Paul's making the same point here in verse 30 that he made in verse 25. Verse 25, you are members of one another. Verse 30, you have the same Spirit indwelling you. Therefore, to tear down one another is to tear down yourself. And that grieves the spirit of the living God. Now, this can look like talking behind someone's back. This can look like talking directly to someone's face, but being harsh and unkind and discouraging. Let me say, I don't care if you're being honest and upfront. If what you're saying is unkind and tears someone down, it doesn't matter if you're being honest. It's still sinful. But instead, seek to build up one another. Verse 31 caps it off. Verse 31, 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Do these traits describe you as a Christian? Are you still holding on to bitterness? Have you let the sun go down upon your anger with your spouse, with your family, with your fellow church members? Instead of speaking to your brother or sister privately, have you often instead gone to others and say, I just need to pray for this person or I just need advice? When you're angry with one another, that's gossip. We may justify it, we may clothe it up, but you're damaging someone else's reputation instead of having the hard conversation. It's difficult, but that's the loving route that Jesus calls us to do. And if I'm being honest, when I look at these verses, I still have much to put off. I still fall quite short. And I'm sure many of you fall that far too. Listen, we cannot keep living like the rest of the world because we are different from the rest of the world. It is time for us to put these things away and approach one another with kindness and tenderness and forgiveness. Why? Because that is exactly how God has approached us through Christ. How often should you forgive one another? Not seven times, but 77 times. Why? Because no one can sin against you more than you have sinned against God. And if God has forgiven you so great a debt in Christ, then who are you to withhold forgiveness from another? My prayer this morning is that you would find victory in your struggle against sin. Because in Ephesians 4, we found that we are no longer totally depraved, but instead we are new creations in Christ and members of one another. So let me ask you, how are you dressed this morning? Are you dressed just like the rest of the world or have you put on Christ? If you have, are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind or are you stuck thinking like your old humanity? What do you need to take off? What do you need to put on? Well, this morning, I have two pastoral charges, two ways that we can take the truths of Ephesians 4 and apply them to our lives. First pastoral charge, put on Christ. Put on Christ. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, let me urge you, please do so today. If you will simply turn from your sin and put your faith alone in the Savior and what he did on the cross, then he will save you from the wrath to come. And through faith, you'll be united with Jesus in your spirit so that he has taken away your filthy rags and given you his spotless, righteous garments. 
And those wearing the righteous garments of Christ can be no more condemned than Jesus himself could be. So put on Christ. If you have more questions about that, I'm always happy to talk. Second pastoral charge. Change your mind about who you are. Change your mind about who you are. In our battle against sin, we do not need to become something new. We need to act like who we really are. We need to see ourselves the way God sees us and then live like that. And that process begins in the mind. Who do you think you really are? Really think about that question. Who are you? Do you still see yourself as a sinner deserving of God's wrath? Do you feel like God just tolerates you, that he just tolerates your presence and your prayer and he just puts up with you? Or do you believe that he loved you before the world's foundation and has set his affection and heart on you and has cleaned you and is pleased with you as he's pleased in Christ because of the righteousness he's given you? Do you still see yourself as a sinner deserving of God's wrath? Or do you see yourself as a son or daughter by God's grace? The battle against sin begins in the mind. It starts with simple Bible reading and prayer. It starts with a commitment to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when the devil stands ready to accuse you and throw your sins in your face, this is what you can say to him. I know that I deserve death and hell, but who cares? Because my redeemer lives. You see, according to God, I have been made new. I am not like what I once was. I have been redeemed. I was chosen before the world's foundation. I was loved before I was born. I was saved by his grace while I was still dead in my sin. I am a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he is faithful to finish what he started. Amen? Amen. That's what you say to him. And it's on those truths we stand. Let's pray. Oh Lord, simply ask that you would grant that what has been said with our lips, we may believe in our hearts and that we may believe in our hearts, we may practice with our lives through Jesus Christ in the power of the gospel and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. We pray all these things, amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.